0: Billy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six. Then who? Edwards, four, five, Dick, the bad, Harry's twain and Ned, the lad. Mary, Bessie, James, of Vane Charlie. Yes, it's King Charles the first. And well, everybody knows the central fact of his life. Well, it was his death having his head cut off. Now, we'd got rid of kings before. They'd been killed in battle, murdered, starved to death, deposed, but they'd never been put on trial and then executed before it happened to Charles. This was a whole new thing. Now, it's true that Henry VIII had done the unthinkable and pretty much started the rot by executing queens, but we'd never executed a king before. So what exactly did Charles do to get himself into this position? And it's hard to pin it down to just one thing. It was the escalation of a lot of things. His walk to the executioner's block took small steps. And I don't think anyone really ever believed it would end the way it did. Least of all him. Until, almost till the last minute, because this was such a line to cross. Now you see it with fallen dictators, don't you? They've been in absolute control of a country and its people. And when the people turn on them, they can never quite believe that it's happening. And they can never accept it. Whether it's Mussolini, Ceausescu, Saddam Hussein, they're saying, You can't try me. You have no right. I mean, even Trump, okay, um, he's not a dictator. But with all these court cases flying around at the moment, he's saying, this is a disgrace. I was the president of the United States. You can't do this to me. And you know what? When I get back into power, I'm going to destroy all you lot. King Charles I, no doubt, felt the same. But he never got back into power because they separated him into two parts. And I think afterwards, when it had happened, there was a sense of, Wah, what have we just done? what happens next? I've mentioned before that with each fresh monarch I come to, there is so much more recorded information about them. And the information about Charles's life, there's there's masses of it. You could spend the rest of your own life trying to get on top of it all and understand it all. And, you know, I don't understand the minutiae of the day-to-day runnings of Parliament and also the kind of the day-to-day running of the Civil War. In fact, it was various civil wars that all sort of coalesced and ended up being called the English Civil War. And I'm not going to go into huge detail about the English Civil War. I'll probably do that in more detail in the next episode when we look at Oliver Cromwell. So some of this I'm going to skip lightly over the surface, because by this time we've, we've got a sort of recognisable Government functions in a very similar way to our modern government with a House of Commons and House of Lords and voting and members of parliament and all this stuff. And of course, the central f- fact of Charles's life is that he spent it arguing with his own parliament. And in many ways, he, he paid the price for the mistakes of every monarch who'd come before him, every monarch who'd pissed off the powerful families, the ruling elite, their privy councils, their parliaments whether it was King John, Henry III, Edward II, Richard II, Henry the Sixth, and particularly the Tudors and the Stuarts. The run from Henry VIII had been particularly bruising. Henry had ruptured society, changed everything, ushered in the Reformation, turned the world upside down. He was a strong monarch, though, and managed to hold things together, even if it basically meant a reign of terror. Elizabeth had been strong. She was a canny woman who kept a lid on things through clever power play. Her successor, James, too, had been a very astute politician. He was a pragmatist. He could work with people. He knew not to antagonise everyone. He knew how to keep Parliament on side. And perhaps Charles came to the throne with a degree of naive overconfidence in his position, thinking his dad had sorted it out. His dad had convinced everybody in the divine right of kings that Charles himself was no James. He wasn't very good at reading people, at reading the situation. He just seemed to have thought that he was king and everyone should do as he said. Uh, but he did come to the throne in a very toxic environment. His father, James, might have been good at compromise, at working with tricky ministers, but he didn't have a very firm hand on the economy. And like most monarchs who live a relatively long time, uh, by the end he was kind of feeble and weakened. And it's the case that often a bad king, such as Charles just like a bad prime minister or a president, is nobbled by inheriting a rotten economy from their predecessors and end up taking the blame for their mistakes. Charles tried to bolster the royal finances when he came to the throne by raising taxes. Parliament didn't like this. So he tried to do it without their consent, but this only made him more unpopular and he became framed as a tyrannical absolute monarch, even though England was the least taxed country in Europe and it had no system of regular direct taxation. But nobody likes paying taxes. We all want a good health service, a good transport system, good schools, law and order, but we want someone else to pay for it. So Charles took the throne against the backdrop of a struggling economy and a society weakened by two things – the long succession crisis caused by Queen Elizabeth I not marrying and the introduction of Protestantism. Charles's father James, perhaps emboldened by Henry VIII declaring himself head of the English church and unquestioned head of state, He came to the English throne from Scotland with a strong sense of his design right and he wanted to assert this. As I said he was able enough to hold things together but only just and by the end he was very unpopular. Charles seems to have been blind to this and he trumpeted his divine right to rule. He had no clue really how to deal with his parliament. His only tactic was to throw a tantrum and shut it down, prorogue it, saying, kings don't need a parliament, I can rule by myself. But he was politically inept, and where he needed to be firm, he was wishy-washy. He was never clear, for instance, where he stood on religion, and just like a politician refusing to answer the question, asked for fear that whatever he said it would upset everyone, he would never just come out and say what he was and what he believed in. Consequently, he was viewed suspiciously by the new hardline Protestant orthodoxy. Whenever a radical new system comes in, a change in society or religion or politics, the new men, and it's always men, are the most fanatical, wanting to push things further and further. So we see this rise of extreme Protestantism through Europe, Puritanism, The very word is uncompromising. This is the pure way of doing things. The only way. There is no middle ground. At the end of the reign of James I we saw how many of these new Puritans were unhappy. I mean it's a crazy state of affairs if you think about it because not long ago everyone was unquestioningly Catholic. Now everyone in England is meant to be Protestant and Catholics are considered heretical. But for many people, it hasn't gone far enough. We need Puritanism, extreme Protestantism, which is why the Pilgrim Fathers, as they became known, and many other radicals departed for America, the land of opportunity, to go and build new lives and new communities. England was still split and Charles was caught in the middle of all this. Not Catholic enough for the old guard, many of whom are powerful English families like the Percy's and the Neville's, and not Protestant enough for this new wave of Puritans and hardline parliamentarians. It was the story of his life. Charles could never please anyone. He was too Scottish for the English, too English for the Scots, particularly the Protestant group who took over the government in Scotland, the Covenanters, who thought he was both too English and too Catholic. It didn't help that he tried to force the Scottish church to adopt high Anglican religious practices and the Book of Common Prayer, which is seen in Scotland as being a bit of sort of English propaganda in a way. The Scots felt that Charles was trying to impose English religion on the country and essentially culturally colonise Scotland. And this led to what became known as the Bishop's War, which is this war between, well, essentially between Charles and the Scottish Parliament. And all of this served only really to weaken Charles and strengthen the English and the Scottish Parliaments. He's also having to look to Europe, which has descended into this extraordinarily destructive and violent war known as the Thirty Years' War, essentially between Protestants and Catholics. And as we shall see, when Charles first comes to the throne, he does try to get involved. He seems much more bellicose than his father. Perhaps he was thinking, oh, if I can go and gloriously win a war, it'll calm everybody down and everybody will think, oh, what a great king he is. But he never had the money to properly wage a war in Europe and instead he got embroiled in various wars at home. There was fighting in Ireland against Irishmen who resented the heavy imposition of English rule. There was fighting in Scotland for much the same reason. The Scottish government, known as the Covenanters, resented Charles trying to impose English politics and as we've seen, English religion on them, which led to the so-called Bishops' War. And of course, ultimately, there was civil war in England between the Royalist faction, the Cavaliers, and the Parliamentarian faction, the Roundheads. And these wars have become lumped together under the title of the English Civil War. Although actually, as I say, there's a war in Ireland, there's the Bishops' War in Scotland, and there are two English civil wars. Uh, and and historians tend to call them the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. So that's what we're supposed to be calling it, instead of the English Civil War. And the lead-up to all this is chaotic and complicated, but I will try to make sense of it. But anyway, I've kind of got ahead of myself here, but let's go back and start at the beginning. Charles was born in 1600, He came to the throne when he was 25 in 1625 and he died when he was 49 when you could say his life was cut short. He was born in Scotland and he was by all accounts a weak and sickly infant and and when the rest of his family left for England in 1603 after his father James was declared king down there Charles was considered too fragile to go with them and he kind of spent his childhood trying to toughen up And the next year, in 1604, he proved he was strong enough to travel by walking from one end of the hall to the other at Dunfermline Palace, all by himself, though he was a bit wobbly. And then, when he got to England, the woman assigned to look after him, Lady Elizabeth Carey, made him wear these big leather boots reinforced with brass to strengthen his weak ankles. Now historians have speculated that he possibly had rickets. A diet of deep-fried Mars bars, and iron brew can do that to you. Sorry, I jest, but um, people didn't know that much about diet in these days, and, and the Scottish weather's even worse than the English, so there probably wasn't a lot of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables to go round in the winter. And he didn't just suffer from this physical weakness in his legs. His speech development was also slow and he had a stammer for the rest of his life, which he did manage to sort of work around and control. But as I say, he kind of worked at this and he he got over it and he grew up to be quite a tough, sporty young man. He was a good horseman and a fencer. Not as tough as the golden boy, though. He's big brother and heir to the throne, Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales, who Charles very much looked up to. This was the boy he wanted to be. He, he, he sort of got his wish when Henry Frederick died young and Charles took his place as heir in 1612. Be careful what you wish for. And at this time, Charles got very close with his sister, They kind of comforted each other when Henry died and and we've seen how in these royal households the children are often separated from the parents. So he formed a very close bond with Elizabeth which, which actually played quite a big part in the rest of his life and in the future history of Europe. But once Charles had moved down to England when he was three, he spent most of the rest of his life there. He barely went back to Scotland. He actually spent more time in Spain. He was there for eight months in 1623, trying to get the Spanish court to accept his marriage proposal to Maria Anna, the daughter of King Philip III of Spain. Now, this was while Charles's father James is still alive. And it's one of these political marriages where the English king is looking to see who he's going to forge alliances with in Europe. And Spain is very much the big, uh, powerful figure at this point. So James and Charles himself are thinking that an alliance with Spain will act as a balance a balance against the power of France and also the northern part of the Habsburg Empire, which is experiencing these ongoing problems in the low countries as local Protestants are trying to stand up against the encroachment of the Catholic Empire. But Charles's marriage to Maria Anna of Spain never happened. Like most of his great plans, it didn't go well. The the Spanish really looked down on Charles. They hated the fact that he was a Protestant. They couldn't get their heads around the idea that a Protestant would marry a Catholic. They felt that Charles was this sort of uncivilised heretic from over the water... Charles had gone there with his father's great favourite, George Villiers, the Earl of Buckingham, and they became very friendly. The two of them isolated in this Spanish court, Charles not speaking Spanish very well, and just as James had become very close to Buckingham, Charles did too. After James's death, when Charles came to the throne, he installed Buckingham as his right-hand man. But as I say, their trip to Spain was a washout and eventually the two of them went back to England with their tails between their legs, only to be greeted by jubilant, cheering anti-Spanish crowds. So, on one level at least, this episode could be seen as a success for Charles in terms of boosting his popularity. And it was only two years later, shortly after his coronation, that Charles married Henrietta Maria of France. Daughter of King Henry the Fourth, sister of the future King Louis the Thirteenth, And she seems to have had her head screwed on, unlike Charles. Now, I mentioned Charles's sister, Elizabeth. And an important thing had happened in 1613, as she married Frederick V, Elector Palatine, who is a ruler of one of these small states within the Holy Roman Empire in the Rhineland and this area known as the Palatine and on marrying Frederick Elizabeth, moved to Heidelberg. Now, all right, sorry, don't get restless. This might sound like a boring and irrelevant fact. Who are these weird Europeans with their weird titles? Can't we just forget all about them? No, you can't. Because Charles's brother-in-law, Frederick, Elector Palatine, which does sound a bit like a Star Wars character. Anyway, he inadvertently sparks the devastating 30 Years' War in Europe. And it's through Charles's sister Elizabeth that we eventually get to King George I and the Hanoverians. They are all descended from her, rather than from Charles and the male side of the Stuarts. So I'll just get that line of succession all out of the way now. At which point... You can choose to remember it or forget it, but it will be coming back when we get to George I. So to start with, we have Charles's sister, Elizabeth. She and Frederick have 13 children, including Rupert, the Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who went on to be a dashing romantic cavalry commander and hero of the Royalist forces in the English Civil War. And Elizabeth and Frederick's 12th child was Sophia, And many years later, in 1701, an extraordinary thing happens. When Queen Anne dies, the English Parliament brings in the Act of Settlement, which states that no Catholic can take the throne, and nobody married to a Catholic can take the throne. Now, Queen Anne gave birth to about a 100 children, but none survived. So the guys in charge went down the list of possible Protestant successors, page after page of it, until they came to the next available candidate, and it's Sophia of Hanover, daughter of Charles's sister Elizabeth. But then Sophia dies, and the throne goes to her son, the German-speaking George, George I, our first Hanoverian king. So that's Elizabeth. What about her husband, Frederick? Right, we're back to the Holy Roman Empire and the bloody Habsburgs again. So bear with me. The northern part of the Holy Roman Empire, you can basically think of that as Germany, a very big Germany taking in Austria, Hungary and most of the Netherlands. The the German Empire, if you like, well, the Holy Roman Empire. And there's an emperor in charge at the top. But this huge land mass is divided up, as I say, into all these principalities, which is why we get all these funny European titles like Margrave and Landgrave, Archduke and Elector. So Northern Europe is wanting to go Protestant, but the old guard of the Holy Roman Empire are resolutely Catholic. And one of these little principalities is Bohemia in what is now part of the Czech Republic. And four years after Elizabeth marries Frederick in 1617, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, a Habsburg Catholic, is elected King of Bohemia, and the locals don't like it. They want to be Protestants, and they boot him out and invite Frederick, a Protestant, to come in and take over, which he does, with his wife, Elizabeth Stuart. Charles's sister, the one we're talking about. And she becomes known as the Winter Queen, which sounds romantic and glamorous, but it's a joke, really, because she and Frederick only ruled in Bohemia for a few months through the winter before Ferdinand, who has by now become the big cheese, he is the Holy Roman Emperor, he sends in an army and Elizabeth and Frederick have to flee and Frederick's lands in the Electoral Palatinate were invaded by a Habsburg force from the Spanish Netherlands, and this is basically the start of the Thirty Years' War between the Protestants and the Catholics in Europe. And it goes on to cause massive loss of life, and it basically shatters Germany. So Charles is being asked by the more bellicose and extreme Protestant members of his parliament, and also by many of the British people, to get stuck in, to send an army to support their Protestant brothers and sisters. But he wouldn't, largely because he couldn't afford it, but also because he was thinking he might be able to work some kind of diplomatic way of of sorting out these problems in Europe. This is why we see him trying to make an alliance with the Spanish. And then when that falls through, he tries to make an alliance with the French. But as he kept out of the Thirty Years' War, he was accused by many of being secretly a Catholic supporter. But he promised the suspicious Parliament that he wouldn't go soft on Catholics. But then he promised the exact opposite in a secret marriage treaty with his brother-in-law, King Louis XIII of France. So he's trying to play politics, play everyone off against each other. He also promised to lend Louis some warships as part of this secret marriage treaty in case Louis got involved in any of this fighting. Charles was crowned in 1626 at Westminster Abbey, but this happened without Henrietta Maria because she refused to participate in a Protestant religious ceremony. At first, relationships were pretty strained between Charles and Henrietta Maria, She refused to go Protestant and she was just a bit too French for him. And in the end, he kicked out most of her French attendants and replaced most of them with members of Buckingham's family. And relations with Henrietta Maria's father, King Louis, didn't go very well either. Louis started attacking the Huguenots in La Rochelle. um, And Charles was in this awkward position where he had promised to defend the French Protestants And he'd also promised to help King Louis. And King Louis used these seven ships that Charles had given him to attack the Huguenots. So this put Charles in a very awkward position. And eventually Buckingham says, let me go and sort it out. And he leads a war party to help the Huguenots. So it becomes this complicated mess. Buckingham's raid is a dismal failure. The Huguenots are defeated and Buckingham comes running back. To England. Now, this wasn't the first military disaster that Buckingham had presided over. He had also been involved in an equally incompetent and costly failure when he tried to invade Spain. Perhaps he'd never forgotten the way he was badly treated at the Spanish court, but he'd basically been saying, look, let's, we don't want a treaty with the Spanish, let's go and attack them. And they have this, this rather pathetic incursion into northern Spain where the English troops get drunk and set fire to a windmill or something, which was about the extent of this, uh, this, this, this great invasion. So with all these mistakes behind him and still being a royal favourite, first he'd been incredibly close to James, possibly his lover. Now he's incredibly close to Charles and seems to be almost trying to run things for him. Parliament don't like favourites. They don't like Buckingham. They keep trying to get Charles to get rid of him. Charles won't Charles says he just needs more money to properly mount these operations, gets into a huge argument. Charles throws a fit and basically shuts down Parliament. At which point he figures, you know what, I don't really need a Parliament. Why do I have to keep having a Parliament? The only reason he might need a Parliament is if he needs to raise large amounts of money. So he figures as long as he can avoid going to war with anyone, he can rule without a Parliament. Because as he sees it, Parliament has only one function. They're the only people who can authorise new taxes. So if Charles can avoid spending too much money, he can avoid reinstating Parliament. So he makes peace with France and Spain. And for the next 10 years or so, we have peace. Things are settled down. And Charles rules all that time without a Parliament. It becomes known as the personal rule or in some quarters as the 11 years tyranny. But Charles does still need money. He's got a household to run. He's got a country to run. So he starts looking at unconventional ways to raise money or ways that they used to do it in the past that have kind of fallen out of use. And he manages to find a few kind of loopholes and old acts and things which he resurrects in order to squeeze some money out of people. And Charles just about scrapes through... And perhaps he might have carried on like that or he might have got to a state where he felt secure enough to work with Parliament again But things kicked off in Scotland. This is when Charles decided he should go back there and assert his authority because the local Scottish government, the Covenanters, are becoming quite powerful. So he thinks, I'll go up to Scotland and and, and remind them that I am king, but they don't really like the look of him. They reckon, you know, he's gone native south of the border. He's an Englishman and nothing more. And the proof of this is the fact that he's trying to impose this English religion on them. Anglicanism, the Church of England. And they don't want to have any dealings with that. And as we looked at before this sparks this it's a form of civil war it's essentially Charles is having to to physically go to war against the Scottish parliament. So what does Charles do? He needs to raise taxes so he thinks okay I'll bring parliament back. I'll say to them look sorry chaps it's all back to normal and 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 it looks like he was kind of hoping that they'd be so grateful that they would do whatever he asked of them. And of course, the first thing he asks is, can we raise a massive tax so I can send a proper army to go and sort out the Scots? And Parliament says no. Now, on one hand, they want to snub him. He's treated them badly. They're going to treat him badly. They're going to show him they're not just going to do what he wanted. But also, there is a great degree of suspicion. They're worried that if he puts together a strong army, he might actually use it to subdue them, to suppress them, to, to assert this uh, ultimate tyrannical authority in England. There's no standing army in England. There never has been because it costs money and the lords are always suspicious that the army will become a tool for an oppressive monarch. So they refuse the request for new taxes and Charles shuts them down again. He prorogues Parliament. And this brief, unsuccessful session becomes known as the Short Parliament. Now, another reason Charles has been interfering with Parliament is to protect his friend and right-hand man Buckingham, George Villiers. As the king's favourite, never a popular thing to be, and a disastrous military leader, Parliament hate him and keep trying to impeach him. But when Charles shuts government down, Buckingham's off the hook. As Charles needs Buckingham, he trusts Buckingham, just as his father did. But the great British public hate him, just as much as Parliament did. And who knows what would have happened if Buckingham hadn't been murdered. Essentially, a veteran of one of his ill-fated European campaigns was pretty pissed off with him about how badly the campaign had gone and also claimed that he hadn't been paid. This was a perennial problem. Kings not paying their armies when they raised them. And while Buckingham is in Portsmouth trying to organise another expedition, this disgruntled soldier basically shoots him in a pub and kills him. And that's the rather pathetic end of Buckingham. The man who used to describe himself as King James's wife. After this, Charles replaced Buckingham as right-hand man with a guy called Thomas Wentworth, the first Earl of Stratford, who seems to have been a pretty able politician and a pretty tough guy. And Charles sends him over to sort things out in Ireland where trouble has been brewing. Now, we looked in the last episode at how James was creating these plantations in Ireland, human plantations. James is sending over more and more English people to settle in Ireland to, to colonise the place, and it, not only peasants, workers, middle class, whatever, also lords who are trying to exert more authority in Ireland, trying to enlarge the king's power and control. And Charles continues with this policy. He makes Stratford Lord Deputy of Ireland, and Stratford establishes a strong authoritarian rule there. And as far as the English and the new colonists were concerned, Stratford was very successful. As far as the local Irish were concerned, well, they hated him. Stratford seems to have been a pretty able politician. For most of the time, he kept a lid on things. Um, and as I said, he was pretty tough. And he's very successful in Ireland, which rouses the jealousy of the English lords back in London. They fear he's getting too strong. But Strafford carried on blithely extending his own power and rule, his authority in Ireland. And his finances were doing very well. He was making enough money there to be able to send some back to Charles at the English court. But there are still these rebellions in Ireland, these violent uprisings, but Stratford is able to raise quite a large army there to deal with this. This also worries parliamentarians in England, thinking, well, this is almost like a private army that Charles is creating here. You know, Does Charles have ulterior motives? I don't think at this time that Charles did. I mean, he was mainly trying to sort the Scots out and, as I say, to subdue the Irish enough to properly think of himself as king there. And this all gets complicated and conflated. Stratford does bring troops over to Scotland. Charles sort of manages to scrape together enough of an army to go and have a go at the Scots. But they do very badly. The Scots have learnt their lessons from these wars with the English. And they manage to send Charles's troops packing and actually come down and invade the north of England. They take over Newcastle. So Charles, having shut down the, the short Parliament after no time at all, desperately has to reconvene another Parliament, which becomes the long Parliament, to try and sort this out, to try and help himself. He brings Stratford back from Ireland as an ally, but Parliament completely turn against him and announce that they're going to impeach Stratford for his high and mighty behaviour in Ireland and for raising an army as they see it to attack them. Charles makes assurances to Stratford that he will stand by him. He won't let anything happen to him. But in order to keep Parliament happy and on his side, he breaks his word. And Strafford is eventually executed. And Charles never forgave himself for not standing up for him, going even so far as to claim that his own ultimate execution was punishment for betraying his friend. At this time, Charles is still desperate to raise money to deal with the Scots. But he's at complete loggerheads with the heavily Protestant Parliament. And he'll try anything to keep them happy. He promises to go tough on the Catholics, for instance. It's a bit like, well, they look like, the final throes of the Rishi Sunak government, where all these ministers are coming out with these mad extreme policies. We're a tough government. We'll deal with the immigrants. Well, in Charles's reign for immigrants, read Catholics, things are falling apart. The country feels rudderless. London is becoming quite lawless. Unruly anti-royalist apprentices with shaved heads. And actually, it's from these short-haired apprentices that the term roundhead comes so what's Charles to do? Well, he puts a tough law and order guy in charge of the Tower of London and that only makes things worse. He also makes the mistake when trying to prove his known nonsense anti-Catholic and anti-religious extremist credentials of arresting some quite prominent gentlemen. For example, in 1637, he has these guys, William Prynne, Henry Burton and John Bastwick, pilloried. They are whipped and then they're put in the so And, you know, this is like the, the stocks. And it's not a fun thing where you throw rotten fruit and cabbages at them. You basically nail their ears to the uh, to the wood on either side of their head. And in some cases, this goes as far as cropping, where the ears are essentially cut off altogether. And there's a lot of unrest. Things are falling apart. The people were against Charles. Parliament were against Charles. He would have been better off getting out of London altogether and holding up on one of his other palaces, but he insisted on staying and fronting it out. And he got obsessed that there were plots on all sides. He believed that certain members of Parliament were even planning to impeach his own wife, accusing her of supporting a group of rebels who had risen against Stratford in Ireland. And Charles was being urged by people close to him to do something about it. And apparently Henrietta Maria, his wife, the Queen, shouted at him, Go, you poltroon, go and pull these rogues out by the ears or never see my face again. And even though it's usually best to do what your wife wants, in this case, what Charles did was very reckless. He actually took soldiers into the House of Commons to try and arrest who he saw as the five chief conspirators. But they had been tipped off and done a runner. Charles was dismayed, crying out, My birds have flown. And he confronted the Speaker of the House of Commons, demanding he be told where the men had gone. And the Speaker famously replied, May it please, your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place. But as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here. And, you know, we have a lot of weird rituals and things going on in Parliament, uh, particularly at the state opening of Parliament, where the monarch arrives at the House of Lords and then sends his spokesman, Black Rod, to alert the House of Commons And the doors are ceremoniously barred against Black Rod and he has to bang on them to be let in. And this is a sort of echo, a sort of reenactment of this time where the unthinkable happened, where a monarch barged into the House of Commons and tried to physically exert their authority. And this is just not done. Parliamentarians are as touchy and entitled as monarchs. A lot of the time. But this act of Charles kind of turned many of his supporters against him and he realised that he was rapidly losing authority. He manages to get away to his palace at Hampton Court and from there he goes on to Windsor Castle. He sends his wife and one of his daughters abroad for safety and then he goes north to Hull where there is this huge military arsenal which has been left there as part of these preparations to try and send a proper army against the Scots. But when he gets to Hull, the gates are barred to him and Charles has to bugger off again. At which point, both sides in this dispute, Charles and the parliamentarians, put together an army. Charles roughly has sort of control of the Midlands, Wales, West Country and Northern England... Parliament is pretty much London, the south-east and East Anglia, as well as the English Navy. There's a bit of toing and froing, but the first proper battle of the English Civil War is at Edge Hill in October 1642. Uh, and this is where Prince Rupert of the Rhine comes over to lead the cavalry. And he starts arguing with Charles's generals. He's rather sort of reckless and hot-headed. Um, he's forever chasing after people and then not coming back. At Edgehill, he managed to plunder the parliamentary baggage train. But at the end of the day, it's not really conclusive. And as I said before, I'm going to sort of skip through the English Civil War. There's a lot of it. I could spend several. I could do a whole series on the English Civil War, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to say it happened. (laughs) And at any one time, one side was doing better than the other, depending on who they could get in to help them. The parliamentarians managed to eventually restructure their army. Now, up to this point, when you levied troops, they would only fight in their local county, their local area. There was no national army. And the Roundheads, the parliamentarians, under their eventual leader, Oliver Cromwell, remodelled the army into a national army so that it didn't matter where the troops were raised. Once they were in the army, they could be ordered to fight anywhere. And this subsequently became known as the New Model Army, which was more effective than the sort of sort of more laissez-faire cavalier army, the Royalists. I'll, I'll look at all this properly in the next episode on Oliver Cromwell. But Cromwell, in a nutshell, had been a lowly member of Parliament and then became a cavalry commander at the start of the war. Uh, But he proved to be a very able general and rose through the ranks until eventually he was running the whole show. And in the end, Cromwell's army gets the upper hand and Charles and the Royalists are beaten down. And Charles, in a sort of act of desperation, surrenders himself to the Scots, hoping that he might form a kind of alliance with the Scots and they might bring an army down to beat the Parliamentarians. But it doesn't go the way he hoped, and the Scottish essentially ransom him to the English for a hundred thousand pounds. Charles tries to sort things out with the parliamentarians; he tries to come to terms with them, say "Look how can we how can we make this work that I'm allowed to remain king? You get what you want But by now, the parliamentarians are getting pretty strong and and they have this more hard line, this more extreme strand of Protestants getting involved including guys like Oliver Cromwell and these negotiations gradually turn into putting the king on trial he's accused of treason and you get this kind of mission drift where slowly you start out with one aim and you end up with another and as I said at the beginning I think nobody really thought it would get there. Charles puts up quite a clever and spirited defence, although the central core of it is, what right do you have to put me on trial? I am the king of this country. Show me where it says you can do this. And this is unprecedented. And everyone admits that. And in the end, quite extraordinarily, Charles is sentenced to death. And in the end, Charles seems to have gone bravely, to his execution. He didn't whinge, but he was still saying, look, I'm the king. You shouldn't really be doing this. He is beheaded outside the Banqueting Hall, which is this this great building, which he had put a lot of money into. Charles had been a big patron of the arts. He really was interested in and knowledgeable about art. And he, of all the monarchs, is the one who amassed the greatest uh, collection of artworks and he had got Rubens himself to paint these panels for the ceiling of the banqueting hall which is still a pretty amazing building if you get the chance to visit but yes a platform a scaffold is built outside and Charles's head is cut off a day later it's sewn back onto his body at which point it was embalmed and placed in a lead coffin And so at this point, we have no monarch lined up. Charles did have children, including his two sons, Charles and James, and a daughter, Mary. It's the only time, pretty much going back to King Alfred the Great's time, where we don't have a monarch. We don't have a person in charge because of his or her so-called royal blood. We have the protector, Oliver Cromwell. Now, it might have been clear during this episode that I wasn't always fully on top of the day-to-day politics of what was going on. But my guest today, Leander Delisle, is an expert on this period. So after the break, I'm going to put you in safe hands as I talk to Leander about Charles.
1: Ready to pop the question?
0: Welcome back. And joining me today is the historian, broadcaster and best-selling author Leander DeLisle. I first met Leander in the summer of 2023 at the Chalk Valley History Festival, which I've talked about a lot, where she was one of my guests on a special live edition of this show where we discussed the best and the worst monarchs. And Leander, you gave a very spirited defence of Queen Mary I, Mary Tudor.
1: Yes, well, she is. She is often dis- described as one of our, our our worst monarchs. I remember writing once that you know she was always the sort of damp little cloud to Elizabeth the first's <laughs> glorious sun, and um, she really um, wasn't uh, the woman she's off- often depicted as. She was actually extremely uh, remarkable monarch, and, and Elizabeth learned a great deal from her. So, uh, definitely a queen worth revisiting.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it was a really interesting debate because I had gone in on my short list of the worst monarchs, and and I did revise my opinion of Mary. And because that show was recorded before I did the episode on Mary, it did, it did change my idea and my representation of her. I mean, particularly this idea uh, that you know these female monarchs are the, they're the first, they they are our first queens, and. Not unsurprisingly, a lot of men didn't like the idea.
1: Absolutely right. And of course, um, you had uh, John Knox uh, infamously writing about the monstrous regiment or rule of uh, women and justifying mm. their overthrow and murder, which was the sort of uh, argument that actually uh, influenced James VI of Scotland and first of England uh, to write his works on divine right kingship. I remember a, a, a Scottish friend of mine saying about um, Charles I, oh, of course, all that divine right kingship. He got that from his French wife, didn't he? And I looked at it and I said, no, certainly not. He got it from Scotland um, <laughs> <laughs> and from dear old dad. But anyway.
0: Well, that it was a really interesting discussion we had at Chalk Valley and with you and Ian Hislop and Tom Holland. And if any of you lot out there want to listen to that, you can find it in the usual place. Um, Now, Leander, you've written several books about the Tudors and the Stuarts, including Tudor, The Family Story, and After Elizabeth, The Death of Elizabeth and the Coming of King James, as well as The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, The Tragedy of Mary, Catherine and Lady Jane Grey, which I believe Philippa Gregory used as a source material for her 2017 novel, The Last Tudor. But perhaps more germane to this episode, your two most recent books have been about Charles, first with... White King, Charles I, Traitor, Murder, Martyr, and then with Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix, Queen, Henrietta Maria being Charles's wife. It's a very bold title.
1: <laughs> well, yes, they're bold, but too long. I should make them shorter. I should make them shorter. I'm actually bad on book titles.
0: Not at all. I think it's an intriguing title. I mean, I should imagine many people might see a book in a bookshop about Henrietta Maria and think, oh, I don't know who that is. I won't bother with it. And then they'll read Conspirator, Warrior and Phoenix Queen and think, oh, that looks interesting. I'll take a look.
1: (laughs) She was interesting, too. So that's good.
0: (laughs) So talk us through Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix, Queen, the relevance of those to, to Henrietta.
1: Oh, right. Okay. There were so many different phases to her life. But I suppose um, the conspirator I rather enjoy, and people know very little about, is her plotting against Cardinal Richelieu. She doesn't make much of a sort of appearance in Dumas' Three Musketeers, which is a pity, actually. She was very much uh, involved in a sort of political struggle with Richelieu right up to the beginning of the Civil War, in fact, and indeed she believed Richelieu was encouraging uh, Charles's enemies um, at that time. So she was involved both in uh, British politics, but also in European politics. There's this whole queen versus the cardinal side to her life, which uh, people know little about, make a fantastic film. So that's Conspirator Warrior. Well, I mean, during the Civil War, what a woman. You have her not only raising money and arms for Charles I in continental Europe, saving his bacon so that he survives the first great battle of the Civil War, which everyone had expected him to lose. You then have her personally coming back, bringing more uh, men, money and arms, landing at Bridlington Bay in Yorkshire, where she's uh, shelled uh, by the parliamentarian navy. It's an amazing description of her. Running with her ladies to a ditch um, and the bullets flying over her head and actually pinging the earth, described not only by herself, uh, but also by other first hand witnesses. You don't find many queens under shellfire <laughs> like that, um, with people uh, killed uh, yards uh, from her. Yeah, so she's absolutely a warrior. Phoenix Queen, best bit of all, um, because she's described in most biographies, you know, they sort of. Well, all of them, really, pretty much. They, so you, you get to the <laughs> Civil War, and then poor old Charles I gets his head chopped off, and then, you know, she's years in exile, and then she comes back when Charles II, her son Charles II, is restored. And then you have a famous description, which um, people quote endlessly, of her dressed in black and looking very ordinary, and she, we, we, she sort of left like this a sort of sad, shriveled old old lady, uh, described by uh, Samuel Pepys, the diarist. Um because people because she's because she's such an unpopular figure in English culture and English history, they like to sort of write her off as this sad old crone. Um, but in fact, <laughs> bad news for those who want to hate her. Uh, this is all complete nonsense. And Samuel Peeps uh revises his opinion. She's dressed in black and miserable at the time because one of her sons has just died, and none of us might feel at our best at that point. Um A couple of years later, he sees her again in court. He says she has the most amusing and merry court, merrier than that of the merry monarch, Charles II. Um, She's a powerful figure again. She's known as the Phoenix Queen.
0: Did she get back into being in an influential position?
1: Yes, she did. I mean, Charles II was a king with his own mind, but she was still very much a a powerful and influential figure, not only in England, um, but also in, in, in France. Um, and um, although she quarrelled um, often with her children, she was extremely spirited w- woman and they were her children and also very spirited. They did love each other very much. And Charles II uh, mourned her deeply when she died.
0: So when her son, the eventual Charles II, escaped and fled abroad, w- what did Henrietta do?
1: So what happened was essentially was she left England in 1642 before the Civil War broke out, went to Holland, To raise, as I said, um, uh, money, men men and arms for Charles, who was in a very, very weak position indeed. Then, as I said, came back actually in early 1643 and remained in England until um, 1644. Uh, Unfortunately, Charles had not listen to her advice on using because he was on the point of sort of winning the civil war with her help um, but uh, and she had wanted him to try and retake London uh, but he he didn't do this and she realized that the war was going to turn against him because parliament was going to join up with the Scots and the numbers would be against Charles uh, and this is exactly what happened and when this happened in early 1644 she then decided to return to France to try and get you know more help for him and so she stayed in England uh, from um, 1644 until the Restoration hmm. in 1660.
0: So are there parallels with Margaret of Anjou, Henry VI Queen, in that we have a, a weak king who is supported and basically kept on the throne longer than he might have done by a strong and clever wife?
1: There are parallels, They were both, I think, 15. They're both the same age um, when they became uh, queens of England. um, And they were both uh, perceived as children of the enemy. In the case of Margaret of Anjou, uh, under Henry VI, we're losing the Hundred Years' War. And she was not only the daughter of the enemy, but an enemy who was winning. So um, that didn't uh, make her Mrs. Popular. Um, And, of course, she was married as, and in the case of Henrietta Maria, she was Catholic, And that made her a child of the enemy. And again, uh, Catholicism uh, was winning the religious war in Europe. And here you had the the sister of a a powerful um, Catholic king. And um, so she was also a child of the enemy. And she, like Margaret of Anjou, married a failing king. These women got blamed for their husband's mistakes.
0: Now, at the start of this episode, I sort of said that trying to find a sort of clear and direct series of reasons of why Charles ended up being executed. did You can't sort of say he did this terrible thing wrong and that terrible thing. It was a series of, of small mistakes. Is, would you say that's an accurate presentation?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's right. It was a catalogue of errors, of misfortune, and, and I suppose the nature of the enemy as well. He could have saved his bacon at at various points right up until the end, actually,
0: um, but he didn't. And was that arrogance? Was it stupidity? Was it just blind optimism?
1: He made errors of judgment, which you could say was stupid. At some points he was making what he would have seen as a moral stand. Um, mm. I know you can call that stupid or not, um, uh, but yes. So but when he was a a, a prisoner of Scots and then of Parliament and then of the New Model Army, there were various things he could have given up. He could have, he could have said, yes, I'm going to give up um, the bishops. I'm happy to agree that episcopacy, that is government by bishops, is intrinsically wrong, which is what they all wanted him to say. Charles wouldn't do that. He was not prepared to go against his religious beliefs. He was not prepared to give up his friends to Parliament to be executed which he had done in the past and never forgave himself for. He gave up his servant, uh, Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stratford, um, mm. who was beheaded. And even on the scaffold, Charles suggested that he believed actually that God was punishing him for having uh, signed Stratford's death warrant all those years before. So so there were different reasons. Sometimes he just made mistakes. Sometimes he was taking a moral stand
0: but, you see, he seemed to believe right up to the end that they wouldn't go as far as, you know, so I'm the king, you cannot do this to me.
1: He thought it was more likely that he would be assassinated. Um, right. He believed he'd be murdered because this was the traditional way. But they said, <laughs> dude, people look backwards. This was the traditional way of disposing of a fallen king. Now, it was unfortunate from Parliament's perspective that he wasn't killed in battle, like his ancestor um, James IV uh, at Flodden, um but um which would have been, you know, better or better um for everyone really probably. But uh <clears throat> um so but he thought they would they would they would murder him. Even when it came to Mary Queen of Scots, Elizabeth i did. she tried to order her servants to murder um Mary the First, um, but he, and if she'd been Henry the Eighth, I'm sure that would have been done, but because she was a woman, <laughs> she, <laughs> they wouldn't actually do it. So he he assumed that was going to happen. Um, they thought they, he thought they might use their barber to cut his throat. And they he thought that was <laughs> things, um, and so he appeared in court with a very long straggly beard because he was to really <laughs> <ashamed. laughs> Um So there's so it's an element of truth that he never thought they would go so far as to uh, chop off his head. Uh, but he also believed that he had cards to play. And he was saying, you know, that you know he had the threat of an army coming from Ireland, hmm. but the civil war continuing. He thought that they would negotiate with him, uh, and he didn't appreciate that by this stage, with the extremists really in control, that wasn't going to happen. And that if he refused to acknowledge the power of the court, that he was subject to the court then they couldn't keep him alive because he would be insisting that he, his, he still had his full rights as king and was, was the ultimate arbiter of everything. And so um, that was that really.
0: And when he was executed, was there a feeling, okay, that's it. That's the end of the royal family. We will have no more kings. Or were they thinking they might find someone else or did they just not really know what was going to happen next?
1: Well, I think the people in charge, certainly, you know, they absolutely abolished the monarchy Uh, then and there. They destroyed uh, the regalia. Our recent coronation we've seen here is all post-Civil Wars, all post-Restoration regalia. All the ancient regalia, all the medieval regalia uh, was destroyed. And the only thing that survived uh, was, interestingly, uh, the the anointing spoon that... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> a spoon.
1: A spoon, which sounds small, <laughs> but it is quite interesting because the oil, of course, it's the oil makes a, a, a bishop. A bishop is is suggestive, again, of divine right kingship, there being a link mm. with God. Um, that
0: the person is magically transformed. And be... Exactly.
1: And what is it in Shakespeare's play um, about Sir Richard II? Um, all, the, was it, all the water and the rough, rude sea cannot wash the balm. Of an anointed king, um, I may oh. be misquoting there. Um anyway, so it's interesting that the anointing spoon survived. But anyway, so de- they definitely thought that's that got rid of. Uh... But as soon as they'd done that, then it was slightly okay. What comes next? And um, which is why Oliver Cromwell behaves more and more like a king, and more and more, and you like Charles the First. He finds Parliament even more irritating than Charles. <laughs> does. He's constantly getting rid of them and purging them. And uh,
0: but he, but he won't. Be, he, he refuses to be a king though.
1: No. yes he thinks that's he becomes a bit sort of coy about that um, but then again at the end on his deathbed he's going to hope he's going to sort of pass it on to his son which is
0: yeah
1: it's a king by any other name frankly and he is crowned essentially and he has a sort of much grander funeral than charles the first did which isn't difficult admittedly um, but he had monarch's funeral so yes
0: and um, where uh, i mean i've not really dealt with Oliver Cromwell much in my part of the episode because I'm going to do a whole episode on him. And you mentioned before that, you know, at the very start of the Civil War, that it could have gone either way.
1: At the very start of the Civil War, it looked like Charles would be defeated in about five minutes. So, as I said, Enretta Maria really saves his bacon by providing him with the money, men and arms that help him survive the first battle at Edge Hill. Um, But uh, Charles... Then proves to be rather a good wartime leader. He's a much better leader of one side. He'd be rather than a king is supposed to represent everyone. And Charles wasn't very good at that, um, (laughs) disastrously. But so he proves rather a good wartime leader, which is why he survives as long as he does. And he is loved, interestingly. In a way that his son Charles II never is. And I find that quite interesting when we look back. I think we think people in general, we want to think, oh, Charles II, jolly, all those mistresses. He seems rather of <laughs> a positive thing, really. Charles I, <laughs> the images of some sort of fey, foppy, boring person. Interestingly, he wasn't. He had a great sense of humour, Charles, by the way, and was tough as old boots physically. But anyway, putting that on one side. It was actually, in reality, at the time, Charles did inspire love in people and people despised Charles II as a cynic.
0: And how did the ordinary people of Britain feel about these unfolding events? Their king being beheaded, these massive changes coming in. Was this an exciting time for them or, or was it a frightening time?
1: Frightening Thinking, well, and terrible time. Life was bad enough anyway, uh, or yeah. could be. I think it depended where you were on the social scale, but I mean, if you're right at the bottom, I mean, life was shit plant you know it, <laughs> and just got whoever's in got charge shiver. it's not going to get better <laughs> uh, but uh if i'm allowed to use that language i'm sorry uh well but, of course um if you had a bad harvest or something you know the, the plague and the rest of it um but actually there were a lot of people in work and so forth who had money who were relatively comfortable uh, except during the very, very hard times before the civil war i think civil war was terrible it impoverished Britain. there's a description uh which was written by um an artist in in England, and it's rather awful, actually. He sees how the English have changed. he's specifically in England, rather than Scotland, um and how they they their faces have changed they're sort of bitter and angry and traumatized, traumatized, as you would be. I mean, mm-hmm. look now around the world, um where we see war. Uh, in Ukraine, we've seen war in the Middle East. We see war. You know, we see these terrible things going on in in Gaza uh, now. Before, after, I mean, just imagine people's faces. Just imagine how they're going to look. How imagine they're going to feel? They've lost people. They're losing people. It's just the daily awful grind of finding somewhere to eat, somewhere to sleep, somewhere to, you know.
0: Absolutely.
1: And killing people. Killing. Being involved in death, killing another human being, that has an effect on the human spirit and the human soul. Mm. Um, And just being a part of that time intimately in your family, even if you're a woman say you're not doing the actual killing yourself, your sons are, your husband is, your brothers are, you may be a victim of it. Um,
0: Yes, terrible. So how does it work exactly getting into a civil war? Other locals just conscripted and told by the local lord, "You're fighting for the Cavaliers, or you're fighting for the Roundheads." Uh, did the peasants actually have any choice? And, and also, are there foreigners coming in to fight, mercenaries? People
1: joined for all sorts of reasons. Some people because they want to fight for the king um, against what they think as 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 a as a, as a clique. Um, so, so I wouldn't think of the Civil War as ooh, it's going to be you know uh, a fanatical divine right monarch versus a sort of lovely liberal democracy people. It's more at the time it was seen more as a, um, well the people certainly the monarchists would have seen the king as as representing the people and the enemy as a kind of um, uh, Bullingdon, uh, you know the Oxford <laughs> dining society, the Bullingdon. There's mm-hmm. a kind of Bullingdon clique. The Bullings and clique are taking over because it was, you know, John Addison described the Civil War as a noble revolt. Um, these were, huh. you know, these were Toffs who were sort of, you know, they were Puritan Toffs. Uh,
0: so the sort of popular idea of sort of Cromwell and the, and the Roundheads, do we still call them that? I don't oh, yes, know. I
1: think so. Oh, well, yeah, we do. Say, yeah
0: um you know that these are sort of the, the good stout men are the people yeah. and and the, the the royalists are all these sort of fops in 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 big hats with feathers but that that's not an accurate Depiction no, of no, happening. no, it
1: really isn't. Um, and no, you had plenty of sort of long-haired, flancy-laced people on the parliamentarian side, particularly <laughs> at uh, the beginning, the revolutions tend to shift things. Um, and they went more towards the sort of crop-haired, more and more crop-haired people um, <laughs> as, uh, as, <laughs> the skinheads. Uh, as time passed by. But Oliver Cromwell himself wasn't some sort of, you know, lovely, you know, Democrat. He was a tweedy country gent. And um, right. he definitely wanted the paroles kept in their place and um made absolutely sure that happened when there were sort of squeaks from from, from new model <laughs> soldiers saying that like, you know, they would quite now they've been fighting for all these years that they would um quite like the vote. Thank you. It was, yeah, well, no way, mates. <laughs> Back in your box.
0: How similar was Parliament at the time to a modern Parliament?
1: I, I suspect they were more educated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who's represented and who gets a vote? And you know, do we have a system like today of this is your local member of parliament, or is it just this is your local lord? No,
1: no, no. You did have your local member of parliament. Um, actually, you had to have. Um, there was a property qualification to vote, and you had to be a man, uh, as indeed you had to be right. up until the twentieth century. Um, they were interestingly, the beginning of the civil war. There were a couple of women who owned property. They're probably widows, because otherwise it's quite difficult to own property if you're a woman. I can't remember the details, but anyway, they tried to vote um, and, had to, and had to be sort of prevented from from doing so. And I sometimes wonder if they were inspired by Henrietta Maria, who believed very much that women should have a voice. But um, but going back to what you're saying, yes, so you had to have a property qualification, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't have to own an sort of enormous estate in a vast country house. And the system was also such that everyone owed everyone else service. So the Lord Peer, and again, they were parliamentarian peers, as I mentioned, um, who really began the civil war would be working with uh, gentry and the gentry would in turn be working with um, people um, parish officials and then the parish officials, whatever you know would expect the support of the sort of yeomans and so and so it went down so society was bound together in some way I mean some people of course behaved incredibly badly and selfishly. The theory was that it was was sort of paternalistic, but as in all families, you get good fathers and bad.
0: So Charles famously tried to rule without a parliament. If the Scots hadn't kicked off, might he have been able to do that for the rest of his reign?
1: Parliament gave the monarch tremendous power. Parliament gave you was a extremely effective tax-raising body. So they gave you money and also gave you legitimacy. And what the Stuarts would not like to acknowledge was that they actually owed their crown to parliament. Parliament had been essentially... Um, rubber stamping who the rightful commas, monarch was since the um, uh, late uh, 15th century. And Charles had to find other means of raising money uh, when he decided to, he, he wanted to rule without Parliament because what, what Parliament was doing is it was using, he was saying, we won't give you taxes unless you do what we say. You have to do this, you have to get rid of this minister, you have to do this and that and the other. Um, and he he wasn't prepared to do this, that, and the other, and he was a useless politician. So he, he dismissed Parliament and then started raising money just by royal right alone, uh, and people feared rightly that that mean, might mean that there'd be no Parliament ever. It was very stupid of him because it meant that he couldn't afford very expensive things, uh, and the most expensive thing would be to go to war.
0: So it was inevitable that he would have to reinstate Parliament?
1: That's an interesting thing about it, 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 Britain wasn't a democracy, but you needed the support of the people under you. Otherwise, you're just a bloke. You're just a bloke. (laughs) (laughs) You can stand there saying, I am king or I am whoever you are, but actually, ultimately, you're just a bloke if nobody's going to support you.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're only there by popular consent, as it was.
1: Exactly, you need consent.
0: And Charles didn't have consent. He kept shutting Parliament down. And when he brought them back, they refused to support him and give him the taxes he needed to mount a war. Why wouldn't they give him the money to fight the Scots? Is it just that they'd had enough of him?
1: Early on, they wouldn't give him money because they wanted, for example, him to dismiss um, his Duke of Buckingham as his sort of leading minister. Yeah. And then Charles felt they should mind their own beeswax, and it was up to a king to choose who his advisors were. Um, mm. By the time it came to the Scots... Well, you know, he had ruled without Parliament for 11 years um, and people, MPs, a lot of MPs or moderate MPs were understandably extremely angry um, and uh, they wanted all sorts of concessions that ultimately he wasn't prepared to give. And also there was, again, an extreme element in, in Parliament that really wanted to strip him of all... Um, power and wanted the Scots to win, and were indeed plotting with the Scots. They were, in fact, traitors. Oh. And when you know the famous thing, when he goes into Parliament and he tries to a- arrest the five members and all that, yeah, he wanted to arrest these people for treason. And one of the acts of treason was plotting with the Scots enemy.
0: So he he was in the right, but he went about it in the wrong way.
1: Well, whether he was in the right or not is is one question. He certainly went about it the wrong way. <laughs>
0: But you're saying they were, they were plotting? Yeah, they were plotting. Yes, I mean,
1: absolutely. He should have. I mean, he, yeah, he he did lack ruthlessness, um, Charles, sometimes as well. He, there are a number of people he should have just got and chopped their heads off early on. <laughs> I mean, during the so-called 11 years tyranny, he didn't execute anybody for political or religious reasons, unlike you know his predecessors. Um, he did chop the ears off some puritans, which is jolly nasty, but better your ears mm-hmm. than your head.
0: So how do we sum up, Charles? What is our final verdict on him?
1: A devoted father, uh, ultimately a devoted husband. He genuinely uh, wanted to be a good king. He genuinely cared for his people. He had a sense of humour. He certainly wasn't remotely kind of weak and foppish. He was strong uh, physically. He was a man who made mistakes. Found it very difficult to read people. Um, Mm. He was uh, quite arrogant. It's interesting, isn't it? Maybe sometimes, maybe a cynic can sometimes make a better monarch. I don't know.
0: And in the end, he does seem to have been quite brave and 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 very dignified. And, and there's the story, and maybe it's apocryphal, that he insisted on wearing two shirts at his execution, so that he wouldn't shiver from the cold and have people think he was shivering with fear.
1: Yes, no, he did All go right. definitely with um, great courage and um, and dignity, absolutely. Yeah, no, he did have that. It's interesting, the English like to have dignity in their monarchs. It's one of the things they didn't like about James, is that he wasn't always dignified. And I always thought in the sort of 1980s with the poor old Duchess of York and then and then there was Prince Edward and he did that. It, it's a royal knockabout, knockout. Do you remember all that? <laughs> yes. And people Gosh, yes. hated that. They really hated it. And, um, yeah, the English
0: expect yes. dignity in them. Well, also, yes, and this idea that everybody keeps saying, well, the, the royal family need to be more like the Dutch royal family and cycle about the place and show that they connect with the ordinary people. No one wants that. No, I think that's right. They don't. No, no they, they want them to be sitting there with a crown and say, look, I Absolutely.
1: I mean, personally, I think the mistake the child made with the, with the coronation was not that it was too grand, was that it wasn't grand enough. Well, that terrible strip lighting they insisted on having everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I always think, if you're going to have a king,
0: let's have a proper king. I agree. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise,
1: what's the point? Yes, exactly. Go for it. <laughs> go, the, go the full golden lace.
0: Well, thank you so much to Leander Delisle for helping me make sense of King Charles I and telling the story of his wife, Henrietta Maria. And if you want to learn more about Charles I and his world, Leander's books are a great place to start. Next time we'll be looking at the anomaly that was Oliver Cromwell and the coming of the Puritans and the banning of Christmas. So make sure you join me for some more fun and games. Well, for no fun and games, actually. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023.